Well, the last thing I want to mention is something that took place last weekend, and our fourth through eighth graders took over the Urban Air Adventure Park for their late night event on Friday from like nine to midnight. And I heard they had a blast. Uh, my sixth grader came home and he said it was awesome. I'm sure it was. And I want, I want to get these, these numbers right, okay? I think this is really cool. The student team sent me these numbers. 195 students attended this event, 22 adult and high school leaders. And here's the coolest part. 69 of the 195 students were friends that were invited that don't attend Grace Fishers. Isn't that awesome? Right? I mean, our students get it. Like, it's worth celebrating, and I know they had an awesome time. And the other thing I want to say is you're, you're investing in the lives of our students. And you do that in multiple ways. Some of you serve in student ministry. You have a front row seat to that. But for the rest of us, maybe we don't have that front row seat, but we're still investing through our giving, through our tithes, and through our offerings. You helped make this event happen, and 69 students who don't attend here joined together for a great event outside the church walls. And I just think that's awesome. So thank you for your, your faithful giving. Not only are you did you invest in the lives of those students, but you're investing in the lives of our high school students as well, because in a few weeks, they're going on their spring retreat. And so again, by your faithful giving, you're helping to make that event happen. So thank you. Well, we're continuing our series called A Worthy Life. Uh, Rob's going to come and share a message with us this morning. So if you would, just prepare your hearts, prepare your minds for a message from God's Word. Thank you. So for over 40 years, I did events like that. Um, the number of retreats and trips I was on, uh, I can't keep count anymore. And there are some, now looking back over 40 years, there are some that stand out. So if they stand out with all the dozens and dozens I went to, there's a good reason why. I think of one, was on a middle school retreat and I was in the cabin with the guys kind of co-leading with some other leaders and it was a Friday night, which means those kids had been in their clothes all day from early in the morning at school. We'd, had our, we'd gotten up there by dinner. We'd had our evening session. And typically in the cabin where I'd be, I'd let the guys rough house and have some fun. And then it was time to kind of wind down. And if you don't help them wind down, they don't wind down. So, so we were winding down and um, the teeth were brushed. And now it was time to get in their bunks, introduce one another, and then we were going to pray. And the, the, the middle school boy above me you know, jumped up into his bunk and he took off his shoes and he swung his feet down below, right by my face. Now, when I tell you it is a memorable retreat and it stands out above all the others, oh boy. I, to this day, I remember how I felt. Um, I mean, it, it, they reeked. It wasn't just stink, it was stinkage at another level. I mean, that poor boy didn't know. And I don't think any of the other boys in the room knew. Nobody cared but me, because it was swinging by my face. And what needed to happen was, he needed to probably get rid of those socks, because I don't think they were, um, they were able to be redeemed, wash his feet, and put new socks on. And as bizarre as that sounds, that's what the writer of Ephesians was getting at. Before you know Jesus, you got stinky old clothes. 
and you change them for new, and it changes everything about the way you live. Before we chose to follow Jesus, we had clothes that reeked. They, were, they contributed to a life of decay. But when our eyes and noses are open, we throw them off and put on the new clothes, clothes that reflect our, our new identity. So let me refrain, uh, review the last couple of weeks, which sets us up for this week. Nathaniel spoke a couple of weeks ago and reminded us that we are focusing in this series on chapters 4 through 6, which is the second half of this letter Paul wrote to Ephesians. But the first three, um, he pours out, Paul pours out all that God has done for us first. The infinite love that he has for us, which was demonstrated so profoundly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, God in human form. Creating a way for us that no matter who we are or what we've done, we get to know God and live for him for all of our days and into eternity giving us a totally new life-giving identity. With that backdrop, then Paul takes the next natural organic step from this is all God has done for us to then what is our response in chapters four to six. And Nathaniel reflected on how every follower of Jesus, no matter what season of life you're in, no matter where you work, where you live, where you go to school, etc., every single follower of Jesus now has a life filled with purpose as they live out their calling, which is basically to be imitators of Jesus. That new identity will shape every aspect of our lives because, as he said, our identity determines our activity. I'd like to do an expanded version of that statement, that truth for, for our time today. The identity we embrace directs everything we think, say, and do. As followers of Jesus, we have a new identity described by Paul in Ephesians as he talks about clothing, to take off and put on clothing, which is exchange for the old. And then Kevin followed up last week and reflected how important it was to make every effort for us to contribute to creating life-giving unity among one another. This requires constant effort because of where you store the butter. Now, if you were here last week, Kevin talked about how when he and Susie were first married, they had different ideas of where you stored butter. One was in the fridge and one was on the counter. And the giggles we heard last week and the, the response we heard last week was a wonderful reminder of how the simple truth is when you bring two people together, just two, the, the potential for differences is crazy. But when you add another person with more diverse backgrounds and tastes, etc., it can be all over the map. The potential for disagreements and disunity grows exponentially when you go beyond two. By the way, we store our butter in the cabinet. <laughs> That's why we need to do all we can, because just two can disagree, let alone a congregation, all we can to be able to create an environment that has the unity of Christ that will result in maturity and stability and love and spiritual growth. In fact, in Psalm 133, the writer describes it this way. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. With so much in our broken world, with, life, um, with, with hateful, life-sucking things in our world, the psalmist reminds us about how beautiful unity is. It's actually how God wired us. It's what we are to, made to experience, peace and unity in all of our relationships. But sadly, we all know this, our human nature gets in the way 
and we find ourselves arguing about far more than where to store butter. But the psalmist goes on to compare unity to anointing oil that was costly and wonderfully fragrant, and also that was followed up by the image of fresh dew falling on the mountainside. Both of those images are wonderful. They, they evoke beautiful uh, emotions for us. And isn't that what you and I would like to experience? A unity so profound, the aroma um, is pleasing to all around it. And it's refreshing due to all those around us, let alone for us. Jesus himself prayed to that end at the Last Supper as he closed the supper. He says this, I pray also for those who will believe in me, that's you and I, that all of them may be one, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That is a part of our wonderful calling, working to live in unity that breathes life in our heart and soul and everybody around us. And so now here we are in week three, focusing on what it takes to live all of that out, which is all part of the life-giving identity that Jesus extends to all who trust and follow him. In essence, it's a change of clothes, which is how Paul, the author of Ephesians, describes what it's like. And today, we're going to turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to read through Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Follow on your app or the Bible here in the auditorium in the seats in front of you or around you would be page 897. Before I read that passage, though, I'd like to ask a question that we've all been asked or have asked someone at one time or another before heading out of the house. Are you really going to wear that? <laughs> Parents often ask it of their children. Spouses often ask it in the amazement of the choice of apparel of their spouse, no matter where they're going. And yes, I get that question often, deservedly so. I have zero fashion sense. I wanted straight leg jeans in the 70s and not bell bottoms. My brother chose for the fashion side. As we study this passage, though, and reference a few others that set us up for the question today is this very simply. What are you going to wear today? The new clothes or the old? Follow along as I read. Ephesians 4, 17. With the Lord's authority, I, this is Paul writing, say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and they've hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly, eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ since you have heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Paul is writing this in the environment where there were two kinds of people in the minds of the Jewish people. There were Jews and non-Jews, and the non-Jews would have been described as Gentiles. But here in this passage, in this context, the Gentiles he was referring to were pagan unbelievers who lived around and among them in the city of Ephesus. They had chosen not to follow Jesus. So Paul writes this letter to the faithful followers of Jesus 
who were in the city of Ephesus, which was known for its idolatry and incredible immorality. There were pagan unbelievers among them, and they were driven by worshiping the goddess Artemis, who had a huge ornate temple dedicated to her smack dab in the middle of the city, and actually was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. That temple and everything that went on there radiated out and infected the entire city. As a result, the majority of Ephesians lived in a way that was totally different from how the faithful followers of Jesus were now living. So you can imagine if you were one of those Ephesians and you turned your life over to Jesus, it would be a radical change of life for you and would have an eyebrow raising to all those who lived around you. And in that context, Paul's letter reminds those who he was writing to. He knows how strong the pull is over back to that other way of living. And he knows how much encouragement that they would need to continue to live like Jesus in an environment that fought everything against it. But this wasn't just an issue for those people there in Ephesians. Paul uses similar language and even stronger in some places in other letters of his. For example... To other followers of Jesus living 120 miles away in the city of Colossae, he writes this. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That old way, those old clothes, not only need to be thrown off, but they need to be put to death. They are so destructive, they need to be dead and gone. He says it a different way to Christians who are living over 5,000 miles away in Rome, and he says this, remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. That way of living needs, and that way of living and being needs to be taken off, just like dirty clothes, and replaced with the essence of Jesus, of how he lived, taught, thought, and acted. As Paul said elsewhere, imitate Jesus. And lastly, of this, he wrote to the followers in Galatia, about 400 miles from Ephesus, saying this. All who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. I know you all know this, but I might as well say it. This isn't about wearing religious t-shirts, hats, or crosses. It's about who we are, how we think, how we speak, and how we live. Paul tells followers of Jesus to take off the old sin nature, to put it to death, to remove that old way like dirty clothes and put on brand new ones. I can hear him asking then and to us today, so what are you wearing today? Though it's a theme throughout his writings, I want to simply go back to Ephesians 4 and focus here for the rest of the time. Paul says these pagan unbelievers are hopelessly confused, their minds are full of darkness, And they wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds, isn't that interesting, and hardened their hearts against him. The word used for hardened here refers to stone or something that was soft and has now become callous, like on our hands or on our fingers. 
In this context, when it's used with eyesight, it refers to the development of blindness. You could see at some point, but now something has happened to where the, the eyes that could see have now become blind. Paul paints the picture of a once open mind and a once tender heart that has changed and is in desperate need of healing. But instead of receiving the healing and the change offered by Jesus, those living this way will do all they can to avoid it. Sadly, that is our human tendency. Rather than listen to the truth and to respond accordingly, the scriptures tell how people go to great lengths to twist the truth, to distort it, to reject it, and turn away from it, sadly, at our own peril. You can see a number of verses that reflect those, those statements in your app notes. It's how Paul describes those in Ephesus that continue to live apart from Jesus wearing their original outfit, the clothes of that old way. And as the psalmist said, only fools say in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. So in order to keep living the way they were living, they would deny God's existence, unaware really of how blinded they are to reality. In a culture back then that prized themselves on having wisdom and minds that were brilliant, Paul made some bold contradictory to their ideology statements about the mind because he says that their thinking is futile and empty and lacking true wisdom and understanding. While they thought they were smart and rational and logical, Paul says that their minds are darkened to God and therefore out of touch with what is most important for all of eternity. All their logic and all their reasoning and all their knowledge pulled together and pulled them farther away from God instead of drawing them closer to him. Now, this isn't to say that human beings can't do good things. I mean, we can build incredible structures. We can develop wonderful breakthroughs in medicine. We can provide water and electricity to billions of people and invent all kinds of wonderful things. But ultimately, this, Paul would say that it is incomplete and even tainted without Christ. I think back to when computers were first invented and we were told about how wonderful they were going to be. We were going to have shorter work weeks, <laughs> right? And while many good things have been done with computers, no question, then and now, can we not say there have also been horrible, evil, hurtful things? That is the tendency of the human spirit. When social media platforms emerged with, with the goal of connecting people, they did, and it was fun. But without the love and wisdom of God... Are any of us surprised to see how many awful things are done and come about through social media? I'm with Paul on this. Life apart from Christ leads to hearts and minds out of tune with his heart, creating misery, disunity, hatred, and more. Paul goes on to say they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. The New International Version says it this way, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. He says their consciences are clouded, they're unable to detect right from wrong and feel no guilt or shame for anything they've done. I believe we've, sung, we've swung the pendulum far too far to one side when it comes to shame. 
Yes, shaming somebody for who they are is demeaning, awful, and ungodly. But when we reject any sense of experiencing a healthy sense of shame, which is defined by this, that painful feeling when we realize we've done something that is dishonorable or improper. And these people had lost all of that. It's that appropriate sense of guilt when we've done wrong and they've lost it. Now, shame is never meant to be a landing place, but a warning light on our dashboard that moves us away from that which we have done to repentance and freedom in Christ. Paul says those without this um, sense of shame, this healthy conscience, would rather keep on living the way they're living. In fact, they can't even see they're living that way. These Ephesians that were around them, it was so normal and acceptable, they would think, well, why would I live any different than the way I do now? There's nothing wrong with it. And in our time, we would hear, who are you to judge me? So without shame, without a sense of what is truly foolish or wrong, they're driven by pleasure and lust, no matter how they get it or who they have to step over to get there. They don't need to change, and any suggestion otherwise is out of touch with reality. They even boldly sin, in the reference that Paul is speaking about, glad to shock others. And it all comes from a greedy pursuit of pleasure, stepping on others to get what they want. Sadly, though sin promises the world, misery eventually follows. Is it no wonder because of what he says at the end of 22, this kind of living is corrupted by lust and deception? The word used there for corruption is that of decay which has begun and needs to be stopped or else it will continue. Years ago, um, we discovered that there was some water leaking into our basement, which is where my mother-in-law lived for years. And so, you know, it was even her that said, I wonder if something's wrong with the front stoop. So I go out to the front stoop, put a level on it, and actually the stoop had sunk down to where now it was leveled back toward the house. So rainwater that hit the stoop would go to the house. So we contracted with someone to tear that all up and put stuff new, and I get a call from the contractor partway through the day. All the wood under the front door was rotted. It affected one of the, a couple of the ceiling joists in the basement, and so that decay had gone unnoticed by me. Whoever had built the house did not put flashing in there, and so thanks to a dear friend, he came over and helped me. We had to tear all that decayed wood out and rebuild everything. That's the image here of decay that was rotting. And so Paul says these Gentiles, these pagan unbelievers, are living a life of decay, much like my, on my front stoop was going undetected to them. They were blind to it, but it was continuing to rot unless it was addressed. Now, if we stop here, it feels like there's just no hope. But Paul does shift the conversation. But all that, all that crud, all those dirty clothes is not what you learned about Christ. It's not what they learned from Paul or any of the other disciples along the way. Paul had once lived selfishly, incredibly blind to what was really true, and and though he was highly religious, it was out of touch with who God was. He had his heart and eyes opened by Jesus, and it changed him forever, and it's why he could say this with bold confidence. Throw off your old sinful nature. He did it. He knew why he had to do it and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. You can imagine Paul saying, that was me. I was even religious. And then I had to get rid of all of it. And I'm so glad I did. Instead, he says, let the spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. 
Put on your new, your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. The tense Paul uses here is a decision that you make at one time and it continues to last with you the rest of your life. So throw it all off and don't pick it back up again. It's what he did years earlier and is encouraging followers of Jesus to continue to do now. The writer of Hebrews uses a similar analogy. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us tear off the sin that so easily entangles. He's referencing hundreds of thousands of believers who've gone before us and remained followers of Jesus even in the most difficult of times. And in light of all God has done and what we know others have done who continue to follow him, let's get rid of anything that holds us back. Throw it off. Throw it away, dump it all, bounce it to the curb. The more you and I get to know and love and trust Jesus, the throwing off the old is inevitable. You compare the two and you go, why would I even want that? It's not a matter of duty. It's a simple matter of knowing who he is and beginning to love and trust him. And the more I do that, the more inevitable that becomes. Years ago, I had opened up an invitation for people to volunteer in our young adult ministry back in the day. And a number of people came over to my house. We're going to have a meeting, talk about what that was like. And as one individual walked in, my wife leaned over to me and said, what is he doing here? I didn't know what she meant until a conversation later. He was someone that she knew from work and was basically selfish um, and was, was cruel and short and totally, he was this description that Paul says in so many ways. But he had given his life to Christ and she didn't know it. In fact, it was so evident that his colleagues, who were not Christ followers, said, what happened to Doc? Did he get Jesus? He did. Doc got Jesus. He, unbeknownst to her, Doc had changed. And so he had come to Christ. He became more patient and loving and kind to others. And everybody around him saw old clothes were gone, the new ones were on. He is a dear friend today. And he is still living out that identity as a follower of Jesus. He has shed his, his old, rotting, stinking clothes for new. So I'm, I'm going to encourage you to use your imagination for the next few moments and to go through your spiritual wardrobe, as it were, and see how it squares with the way Paul contrasts the old clothes with the new. First, we're going to take a look at the old clothes and just think about your life and the spiritual wardrobe that you have. Which one is a reflection of who you believe you would like to be? And also, who you would love the people around you to be like? Man, I hope that doesn't describe me. There are moments, I know, as we struggle with the old life and the new. Isn't that such a contrast? Go ahead and go to the new slide. There you go. Now, wouldn't you love to have those people in your life all the time? Be someone like that? That's the difference between wearing the clothes of the old life and putting on the new and the new identity. Paul knows the people who he wrote, not only there in Ephesus, but in other cities. They lived in an environment of spiritual blindness. So he used, God used Paul to reach those who are clinging to their old clothes and their own way of living. 
He encouraged them to get to know and love Jesus and then give it all up and follow him the rest of their days. To embrace the true identity as followers of Jesus and be renewed. God also used Paul to, to encourage those who struggled, who so desperately wanted to grab those old clothes and put them back on again. To put their identity aside and live a double conflicted life. He encouraged them to let it all go and keep trusting Jesus to receive the love, grace, and forgiveness that Jesus offers every day. I'll draw to a close reflecting on a documentary I saw not long ago, and I can't remember the specifics, but it still stuck with me. It was in the vein of the show that's called um, um, Locked Up Abroad or something like that. You know, if you get busted for something in a foreign country and you get thrown into one of their jail systems and what it was like, well, that's what happened to this guy. He, he thought he could get away with something, and next thing you know, he ends up in a, and I don't remember what country it was, right? And for month after month after month, it was hopeless for him. It was, it was damp, it was disgusting, it was dirty, and they wouldn't give him a change of clothes. You know where I'm going with this? And so for month after month, this guy's wearing clothes that if you could have smell-o-vision on TV, you could almost like, oh man, that has got to reek. And eventually, in the midst of all that no hope, the, the guards came and told him that he was being released. It was time to go. He was being freed. And he didn't take, it didn't take that guy long, based on how he told the story, to get rid of those old clothes. Get rid of them, I don't want them back again. He was finally free. That's the image Paul is drawing us into. Why on earth would anyone want to live like a prisoner when they don't have to? And once free, why would anybody consider going back and grabbing those old prison clothes and putting them back on. So just one question again to you this morning. What are you wearing today? Paul would encourage you to put on that which is new and life-giving and eternal. Let's pray. Father, what an image. I think of that middle school boy. Bless his heart. He didn't know. I didn't tell him. He was unaware of the stench of what he was wearing. I wonder how often those are apart from Jesus. And even those of us who are, we go back and forth and grab the clothes, forget what you have called us to, a life-giving way of living. So thank you for that image, Lord, even now as we set aside time to remember you um, here and now for what you've done for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.